Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. Well, good evening. Welcome back to our Tuesday Theology. I'm always encouraged when I come here on a Tuesday night and see your faces. And see, this is a group of folks and those of you who are watching online or individuals who are, who are toughing it out, who are spending some time working through some heady and some heavy topics of doctrine that we've been dealing with. I was thinking about what we're trying to accomplish in this class and we're doing so much. It reminds me of the story of this commanding officer and his young lieutenant. It was during the, war, the days of World War II and they were in Europe and they boarded on a train. And the trains in those days were very, very narrow, and there were two seats, an aisle, and two seats. Well, the commanding officer gets on first, and he walks, and he finds a seat. He sits by the window. His young lieutenant comes and sits next to him. They make several stops along the way, and then in walks this elderly woman, and behind her is a beautiful young lady. And the elderly woman walks down right where the young man and the commanding officer are sitting, and she sits by the window, and this beautiful young lady comes and sits across from this young soldier. And as the train is moving, they are making eye contact. You can see that some chemistry is beginning to build up in there. They're smiling at each other. And then that train goes into a pitch black tunnel. As it gets in the tunnel, you can hear two things. You can hear the sound of a kiss, and you can hear a slap. Immediately, thought processes are beginning. The grandmother is thinking, I can't believe he reached over there and kissed her. I'm glad she slapped him like that. And the young lady's thinking, you know, I'm glad he kissed me, but I wish my grandmother wouldn't have slapped him like that. <laughs> the commanding officer's thinking, I don't blame him for kissing her, but I wish she'd have slapped him instead of me. <laughs> and the young soldier smiling from ear to ear thinking, it's not every day you get to kiss a pretty girl, slap your commanding officer, and get away with it. <laughs> so that's a guy who is making the most of his time. And, and what we have been trying to do as we're working through theology, we're trying to make the very most of our time. And we know that what we're covering in this class is not necessarily in detail for all of the topics that we're going to be talking about. But let's begin with a word of prayer this evening. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here as fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, and for those who are online who are taking the opportunity to study as well. I pray, Father, that you would continue to use this time to sharpen our thinking, to help us to think critically and deeply about your word. Father, to consider some of the more difficult and deep doctrines in the truths. And Father, we recognize and we confess even now that we do not have the capacity to understand it all. Father, that we can't even touch some of the mysteries such as the one that we're going to discuss tonight. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds and that, Father, as we give consideration to your word this evening, that the result of that would be a changed heart, 
a deeper appreciation for you and your love and your grace for us and the incredible gift that you have given to us in your son and the way that you have given us your Holy Spirit who indwells us and works to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been working through some real difficult and heady discussions, and tonight we are going to tackle another difficult doctrine, the doctrine of election. And I realize that I have been chosen to lead this one. I was elected to lead this one. Now, the doctrine of election is one that has created a lot of frustration over the years, a lot of aggravation, and unfortunately, many believers have been experiencing separation from one another because of it. It's one of these doctrines that seems to put people at odds with one another. In fact, we have seen people churches, and entire denominations choose one side or the other when it comes to the doctrine of election. And unfortunately, the battles that we have fought in many of these are battles that are based upon a lack of total understanding. Because this is a mystery. This is one of those difficult things that we're going to look at, and I don't think any one of us has the answer to it fully. Only God has that full and deep answer. So tonight we're going to deal with the doctrine of election. But before we jump into the lesson, I want to just do a couple of things. Number one, I want to be able to lay out to you why the doctrine of election creates confusion among so many people. And I want to give you a history lesson of how we got to where we are in the development of two specific camps when it comes to the doctrine of election, okay? So we're gonna have a history lesson. We're gonna walk through this. Some of you may know this, but it's gonna be helpful before we dive into the lesson that we have. The first thing we need to understand is this. The doctrine of election is an antinomy. What is an antinomy? An antinomy is an appearance of a contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. It's two equally valid truths that are truth when they stand side by side and they make perfect sense. But when those two equally valid truths come together, there is the appearance that there may be a contradiction there. For instance, in, in, in nature, light is an antinomy. Light is an antinomy because light is considered to be created by waves, represents itself in waves, and also represents itself in particles. Now, it's not that it's only a wave. It's not that it's only a particle. It is a wave and a particle, and they understand that that is an antinomy. While they seem to be okay separate, they don't seem to make sense together. When we deal with the doctrine of election, we're dealing with truths that are taught in the Word of God, and they're taught throughout the pages of Scripture. Yet when you put them together, it seems that they just don't quite fit. So when you deal with the doctrine of election, there are two undeniable truths with respect to man's salvation. And here they are. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. 
Now, notice I didn't say God's sovereignty and free will. Because the real issue isn't the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. The real issue is always the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of every human being. And so when you look at this antinomy that God's sovereignty over against human responsibility, we find that there are passages in Scripture that support the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. One of those is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, I want all of us to say that together on three. You ready? One, two, three. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That is speaking about the sovereignty of God. This is a sovereign act of God of His choosing. Now, there's another scripture verse that people use to support um, human responsibility. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Let's say that out loud on the count of three. One, two, three. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the problem is this. Through the course of time, people have landed on one or the other of these scriptures to develop this whole concept of salvation and how God works. There are those who put a great deal of emphasis on the sovereignty of God, and then there are those who put a great deal of emphasis on human responsibility or the free will of man. And as a result of that, there have been camps that have been developed over the years. And unfortunately, these camps have ended up in strong emotional debates, name-calling, separation, anger, divisiveness, and an interruption in achieving the work of the kingdom of God on earth. Those divisions have been real, and these are not just divisions that have been happening just recently or over the last decades. These have been going on early in the life of the church. So I want to give you a history of some key individuals and where all of this began. Okay, we can begin in about 300 and to the late 300s and the early 400 A.D., A.D. 390, 400. There were two main individuals who came on the scene, Augustine and Pelagius. This is Augustine, in case you recognize him, okay? And this is Pelagius. And these two individuals were at odds with one another. When it came down to this issue of original sin, they were at odds. Now, uh, uh, Augustine was a, um, uh, a bishop of South Africa, a little place called Hippo, Augustine of Hippo. And uh, he was um, um, holding very clearly to original sin. And not only that original sin, but it, it spreads to all of humanity. And then you got Pelagius, who was a British monk, and he was holding to a little bit different position. Matter of fact, let's look and see what they are. Pelagius says this. His teachings can be summarized in three basic positions. He says, There is no connection between Adam's sin and the state all people are born into. People are born innocent without sin. In other words, he's saying that every person who is born is born innocent the way Adam was created. So you're born without any kind of sin. People have the free will to choose good or evil. 
There is a grace of God active in the world, but it is only an illuminating grace that influences people, but it can be resisted. So what he's saying here is this, that every single person is born as Adam was created, perfect. But when you choose to sin, then you become having a sinful nature. But in the midst of that sinful nature, you can, even though you are a sinner, be able to choose God on your own and get out of that sinful state that you find yourself in. Pelagius held to this. And this was a teaching that was spreading through uh, the churches in 380, 390, 400 A.D. Here's what um, Augustine taught. Augustine opposed Pelagius, and he argued that Scripture clearly teaches every human is born in sin, and their conscience is marred so that they, by nature, rebel against God. In short, Augustine's position was that people do not save themselves because they cannot, nor are they saved against their will because they will not. God needs to make their will compliant. Neither the grace of God alone nor He alone, but the grace of God with Him. And so as this debate raged, they ended up at the Council of Carthage in A.D. 412. And Augustine won. The church held to Augustine's view and Pelagius' views were officially considered heretical. And so he was deemed as a heretic and it began to put down this, this false teaching that was coming up. Now, as the church continued on, other church fathers were jumping into the battle. There was one by the name of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas followed Augustine where the free will of humanity is concerned and stated that all people are absolute debtors to God and cannot merit salvation on their own or by their choice. It is impossible that any creature should cause grace. Hence, however much of a man prepares himself, he does not necessarily receive grace from God. So he was a supporter of Augustine and holding on to the total depravity of humanity. Well, soon later, another view began to rise up, and it was called semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism says that, okay, okay, we agree now that there is original sin because we find in Romans chapter 5 that sin is passed on to every man because of Adam's sin. However... We also believe that man still has the ability in the midst of this depravity to be able to find himself choosing God and being able to make his situation with respect to salvation applicable. And so as that battle began to rage, then what happened was semi-Pelagianism was also condemned by the Council of Orange in 529. So both... Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism were both rejected as heresies. And then comes the Reformation. Martin Luther nails his theses to the door of the church of Wittenberg, and then the Reformation begins. And as the Reformation begins, a number of men began teaching, and two men began to emerge with the doctrines of grace in the midst of all this. That's Jacob Arminius and John Calvin. Jacob Arminius and John Calvin. Now, John Calvin was part of the Reformation. And as he began to teach and disciple and preach, he had a lot of followers. But then after uh, John Calvin's death, Jacob Arminius began teaching. 
And he began teaching a philosophy that was different than um, the, the views of Calvin and uh, Augustine. And so they developed, he, he began to develop five points of Arminianism. And as a result of the five points of Arminianism, John Calvin's disciples, after his death, came up with the five points of Calvinism. And then we see from that point is this battle that was launched through the ages. And there is this constant battle between these two groups. Now, what do they teach? The five points of Arminianism and the five points of Calvinism. I'm going to give you each of those, and we'll begin with the Arminians. The Arminians believe in partial depravity. Partial depravity means this. Yes, every human is tainted with sin, with the original sin that has been passed down from Adam. We're all sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. But because of a special kind of grace, prevenient grace, then that person has the ability that even though he is depraved, a part of him has the ability to choose God even in the midst of his depravity. And prevenient grace allows him to experience that. The Calvinism believes that we're total depra- totally depraved. Total depravity means every aspect of our being has been affected by sin. Every aspect. And because of that, we are spiritually dead. And if a person is spiritually dead, he or she cannot ever respond to any kind of spiritual stimuli on their own. And so while Arminianism says you're dead, but you can still respond on your own, Calvinism says you're dead and you cannot respond on your own to any kind of spiritual um, work in your life. Secondly, conditional election. Conditional election for Arminians means this, that God looks through the corridor of time and he sees all the individuals who will surrender their lives to him and then based upon their choice of Jesus, then God elects them. So God's election is really based upon human response. So as you look through the corridor of time, this person's going to choose God, so God elects them. That's conditional election based upon the response of a human. Unconditional election simply says God chooses. God chooses in and of his own will for his own purpose, for his own glory. There's nothing in and of us that would ever capture the attention of the Father to say, wow, I need to choose them because of this. No, God simply chooses. It's unconditional. Then you have universal atonement. Universal atonement means this, that the death of Christ on the cross is sufficient for all humanity. And all humanity can come to Christ through their surrendering and choosing him. In other words, the the, the work of Christ on the cross covers all of humanity. When you look at limited atonement, limited atonement means this. The death of Christ on the cross is sufficient for all of humanity, but it's particular for those who have been elected by God. And so it's known sometimes as particular atonement. And so it means that it's sufficient for all, 
but it is only particular and effective for those who are the elected of God. Okay? Now, you have resistible grace. Arminians believe that you can resist the Holy Spirit working in you. So the Holy Spirit can begin convicting you of sin and judgment and righteousness, and you can turn away and reject it and walk away. Irresistible grace on Calvinism says that, no, once the Holy Spirit begins to change your thinking, he changes your heart, he changes your mind, he is the one who gives you the thoughts that are new. He is the one that even gives you the faith that you have. And so there is this irresistible grace because God is changing you as he is working in your life. Okay, here's one. Perseverance of some saints. Now, Arminianism can vary in here. There's a perseverance of some of the saints, which means this, that you can be saved, but you can possibly lose your salvation. And you can be saved as long as you persevere in these things. Now, some camps of Arminianism do not believe that. But they use the term eternal security instead of the perseverance of some saints. And then for Calvinism is a perseverance of all saints. If you have been saved, you are secure. You know the the phrase, once saved, always saved? Some people don't like that. I've never been a fan of that because um, um, many people claim to be saved and then they walk away from it and people say, you see, they've lost their salvation. I like to say, once saved, always saved if you have genuinely been saved. And so if you're a child of God and you've trusted in Christ, your eternal security is safe. Now, before we move on, when we deal with Calvinism, you have to understand Calvinism and Arminianism, people might say, I'm a five-point one of these. Or maybe I'm just a four-point Calvinist. Or, you know, I'm a three-point Arminian. And people will pick and choose. And we even live in a culture today where people are mashing them up together, and they don't really know what they believe. And many people say, well, well I have a problem with Um, some of the points in here, particularly limited atonement. Many people have a problem with limited atonement. I always ask them, are people going to hell? I'm asking you, are people going to go to hell? Atonement's limited. Practically so. But now why is it limited? Is when you get into the different arguments in that. And so what happened is after the Reformation, the Catholic Church came out against this. And at the Council of Trent, The Catholic Church met to consider with the Reformation with the goal of being to defend their beliefs and distance themselves from the Reformers. So the Council affirmed the doctrine of original Adamic sin. Humanity is born into the world, separated from God. Thus, infants born need cleansing from Adam's sin and so need to be baptized to wash away Adam's disobedience. So in the Catholic Church, that's why you find small children being christened at an early age. And then John Wesley comes up, the Wesley brothers, and they develop the Methodist church. And John Wesley is kind of a mix. Remember I talked about the kind of a mix? You find a mix here with John Wesley. He's kind of combined some of them. It says he adopted a position that was a middle ground between Reformed and Arminian teaching. He affirmed humanity was totally depraved and could not cooperate with God. 
However, he said that because of Christ's work on the cross, God's grace comes upon all people, a grace termed preventing or prevenient grace, and that people at that point are capable of freely cooperating with God where salvation is concerned. Without prevenient grace, the Calvinistic logic is irrefutable, is what some have said. So, when you look at that, another figure rises up, George Whitfield. And Whitfield and Wesley were at odds with one another. The battle really begins to heat up. And it looks like Whitfield is kind of cross-sided there. So I don't know where that picture came from. But these two guys were key leaders in, in, in their day. And as a result, they were at odds dealing with one another, pulling up the daggers and fighting fiercely over this. And since that time, we see a huge division even in our culture today in our churches. And in our Baptist churches, we see a lot of people who are, are, are divided on this issue. You may be here tonight and you may say, well, I think I, I tend to fall more into that camp or I tend to fall more into that camp. Or maybe I'm a three-point Calvinist or a two-point Arminian, whatever it may be. But here's a chart I want to show you of how they basically break down today. I'm not going to get into all the monogism and synergism and all that, but I just want you to show it. In Arminian, most Methodist or Arminian, Nazarenes, and really most Baptists find themselves in the Arminian camp. When you get to uh, those who are Reformed, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, all the Reformers, Edwards, Westminster Confession, uh, 39 Articles, Baptist Confession of 1689. Now, that might not mean a lot to you, but let me put it in this way, the next slide. Here's what we find um, today and I'll give you a, little, a few more modern names. These are the names of leaders and pastors and teachers who fall into the different camps. We'll just start down here with Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, Francis Schaeffer, Charles Swindoll, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Jr. And at Calvinism, you can add John Piper. You can add Matt Sandler. Uh, Matt Sandler. Uh, Matt Chandler. Uh, Matt Chandler. You can add uh, Kevin DeYoung, Mark um, Dever, a lot of these guys fall into this Calvinism camp. As far as the Arminian camp, I don't really know a lot of these guys beyond that, but I mean, I know them at the top. C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, Rick Warren, Thomas Oden, Roger Olson, J.P. Moreland, Ben Whittington III, Paul Copen. Let me just give you some more names. Andy Stanley, Charles Stanley, uh, David Jeremiah, and we find a lot of people who fall into those different camps. Now, what you see is that there are great men and women of God who fall in either side of these issues. So the issue that we're going to be dealing with as we walk through this whole thing of Arminianism and Calvinism, we're really not going to get into that as much as we want to get into the doctrine of election itself. Why did I show you all these? Because this is how we have broken it down in our culture. And one person came up with this cute little meme that I thought was really a great picture of the two camps. I don't know if any of you ever followed The Office, but you've got Pelagianism, Arminius, and Augustinians, Calvinists right there, both the same guy. So those are how people will depict them to be quite different. Now that I've given you a history of all that, let's jump into your lesson. And as you jump into your lesson, as we deal with this, I'm going to ask you some questions, and you may have a lot of questions tonight. 
And uh, David Dietz is here, and he has agreed to answer every one of them for you. And he's sitting in the back. So as we begin the lesson tonight, he begins with the order of salvation. And dealing with the order of salvation, he begins with election. Now, it's very clear that John Grudem is in the Reformed camp, or what you would consider the Calvinist vein. And this is the book that we have used, and we have used here for a long time, because our leaders here are primarily Reformed in our theology and in our doctrine. We are not Reformed to the sense of like we wear it on our sleeve, because the one thing that we want people to know is it's not going to be a label we really are biblicist whenever we say, if we're going to put ourselves in any camp, we're biblicist. And we want to teach what the Bible teaches to the best of our ability. So he begins with election. Then you deal with the gospel call. That is the sharing of the gospel, the hearing of the message of the gospel. That moves into the process of regeneration. We talked a little bit about that Sunday. And conversion. Regeneration and conversion can be something that happens very quickly, simultaneously, or it's a process where God is drawing somebody, and in the process of that, it leads to the point of conversion. Then you have justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, and then glorification. Now, as we deal with this order of salvation, most of us don't have a problem with the majority of that. I don't have a problem with any of it, particularly, but it, dealing with the fact that it begins with election. Now, the interesting thing is this. No matter what position you hold, you will have to understand and you will agree that there is a work that God does from eternity past before we were even here. Whether it's looking through the corridor of time and responding or just simply choosing, there's an eternal work that happened in the process of salvation before we even came. So there is this point of that. Now, what is election? Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. When we deal with election, it's dealing with God's sovereign good pleasure. Now, there are a lot of different um, definitions out there, but I like this definition because it's biblical, and it's, it's, it's supported by Scripture. Now, here's the first question that we have. Does the New Testament teach predestination? When I talk about predestination, we're rolling that in with election as well. In your study, what did you discover by that question? Does the Bible teach clearly about the doctrine of election and predestination? This is yes, this is no. What do, you, what do you find? What did you find in that chapter? Give me some illustrations. Give me some scriptures that support it. Ephesians 1. Okay, yeah. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. What are some other examples? Okay. All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. What else? Acts 13. Acts 13. Yeah. So what you see when you go through the pages of the New Testament, 
You see God's active role in choosing and, and, and this process of predestination. So we see it all through there. Now, he asked this question, how does the New Testament present the teaching of election? He gives three things up there. How does the New Testament present? It's as a comfort. Okay, here's the second one. As a reason to praise God. And the third, as an encouragement to evangelism. Now, here's what I want to ask you. In looking at the doctrine of election and what we've been looking at, how might understanding the doctrine of election bring comfort to you? How might you feel comforted by God's sovereign love for us? What's that? Okay. Does it feel special to be chosen? I'm glad I was chosen. Okay. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Anything else? Brings assurance. Brings assurance. Okay. In what way? Okay, so he's begun it and he's going to complete it. Okay, Paul kind of talks about that until the day of redemption. Um, what's some other ways you might feel comforted by the doctrine of election? If it had been left up to me, I might not have done it. Okay, yeah. I think that was pretty accurate stated, accurately stated. Well, he doesn't just choose us and leave us. He continues to be with us and continues to help us grow. Yeah, there's that, that aspect of this incredible love and intimacy that the Father has. And the thing that, that encourages me was there's nothing about me that was lovely. I mean, there was nothing about me. I think about where, when Christ, and I shared my testimony on Sunday, when, when, when the Holy Spirit began to convict me and what my life was like, Oh my goodness, I, know, I, I, had, I was one of those people that would say, I have nothing to offer to God. And it just brings this incredible sense of comforting love. Okay, how about this? How does it lead you to praise God? How might understanding this doctrine and getting a grasp of it bring you to the place of wanting to just lift up Him up in praise? How might that cause you to do that? And what might be the, the reasons for that? Gratitude. Okay, gratitude. What else? Humbling. Humbling. Oh, yeah, absolutely, isn't it? Gruden talks about when he's discussing the, the unfairness uh, aspect or the, the objection of being unfair, that true fairness would have been that nobody yeah. was chosen. And, and in fact, if you want to take it back to the garden, true fairness was when you sinned, you actually did die, and therefore there isn't any of us even here to begin with. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, and we see through scriptures that the angels that fell, God could have redeemed them, but he didn't, and he didn't have to. And yeah, it's just this, this, this sense to praise him because of his incredible grace. One of the things that struck me about really getting an understanding of God's just simply loving us and choosing us. We sing the song Amazing Grace all the time. But think about how amazing it really is. What's the, this last one? How does it encourage us to evangelism? 
Now, this is something that you have to understand that Arminians, those in the Arminian camp would say people who are Calvinists don't pray and they don't share the gospel. Because if God knows everything and He's sovereign over everything, then we don't have to pray about anything because God will complete and accomplish His plan. Or do we need to be involved in evangelism? Because if God is electing people, then I don't need to do a thing. God's going to take care of it. But the opposite is really true. How is it an encouragement to evangelism? Yes. Okay, yeah, good. So in a sense, there's a sense of success along the way of sharing the gospel. I love what C.H. Spurgeon said, and we were talking about this the other other day. C.H. Spurgeon says, um, somebody said something about sharing the gospel and you don't need to. He says, listen, as far as I understand, I can't go and pull up somebody's shirt and see if there's an E written on their belly so I can share the gospel with them. He said, I have no idea who God is working in. So I share the gospel with everyone. One of the things that has encouraged me in sharing the gospel is this. It's not up to me to persuade somebody to come to Christ. I don't have that power. And if I can talk you into Jesus, humanly speaking, you can talk yourself out of Jesus later. And so it's not, I don't have that authority. It has freed me to be able to just be open and to share the gospel and to be as truthful and loving and compassionate as I can and trust the Spirit of God to do the work that He does best. And it has freed me to be able to just say, you know what, I don't have to feel like the weight of my, this person's salvation is going to be determined by my delivery of this gospel presentation. I went to this place. It was so funny. We went to Ecuador and we had this little Evangel cube and we were going home to home and Evangel cube, all these colors and everything. And you open it up and it had all the little pictures and we studied it and had it all ready. The first home I went to, I sat down and the man's looking at me and I said, I got something I want you to see. He said, I'm blind. <laughs> I couldn't even use my Evangel cube. And so I'm just sitting there just thinking, okay, I've, I've prepared for all of this. Now I'm dealing with a blind man here. And so I just had my translator and we walked through that and I shared the gospel. And he was blind and tears were just pouring down his face. And he prayed to receive Christ as Lord right there. And I believe that was a, that was a genuine conversion because the power of the Holy Spirit that was in that room was unbelievable. And so we are absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit to do his work. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, I've been in ministry on almost every continent in the world, and it's interesting that in 
Yeah, and, and I believe you're right about that in some ways. Now, I think that there are many Reformed churches that um, have the proper view of a biblicist position and the call to evangelism. Here's the thing. You can be in a ditch on either side. You can be a ditch, and when it, you get over here to the sovereignty of God, you can be in a ditch when you get over here to the responsibility of man. There has to be a good balance between the two. Somebody says that, you know, it's really hard for me to grasp. And I'm going I'm to ask you in a moment the things that you struggle most with when dealing with this. But I will tell you this. Calvinist churches have the tendency to be the most arrogant, the most self-righteous, the most insensitive, there is a saying that when a person comes to faith in Christ, we celebrate. If that person becomes a Calvinist for the first year, you put him in a cage until he learns to calm down, and then you release him on the wor in the world. And so what happens is that is true, and a lot of Reformed brothers and sisters will tell you that that can be a danger when it goes to the life of different different denominations and that's why here at scotts hill we may hold to the 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 doctrines of grace in a balanced approach and land in a reformed camp but we have the responsibility to share the gospel and to go and to share with as many people as we can the great news of jesus christ yes sir on this same vein phil um a number of years ago, um, I was doing work down in Savannah, Georgia, and um, I had a, a guy down there who kind of worked for me for an Air Force base, and I found out that he was a Christian. And when I, I flew down there to stay for three or four days, and I stayed over a weekend, and he, because I, I wanted to go to church with him, so I went to church with him, and it was a very large uh, PCA. Presbyterian, yeah. you know, church, very large. When I say large, it was like maybe like 5,000, 6,000 yeah, you know, people, you know, showing up. And uh, we, we started, long story short, we started talking, and, and we got talking about missionaries, and he, he said to me, quote, he said, this was, I mean, he actually said this to me. He goes, well, we don't believe in missionaries. Hmm. I go, oh, okay. And then and I, it struck me, I, you know, I was kind of young and stupid at the time. So, but I, I started listening to this gentleman, and he was, in, he was a little bit older. He was older than me, and this was many years ago. And he, and I, so we started talking about Matthew 28. And he said, well, he says, Craig, I probably don't have the same view of Matthew 28 as you do. I go, oh. Okay. Is there another view? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't. I was too stupid to ask him that, but I, I didn't know. But but he, he just went on and on. And so they have no evangelism. He says because he was he was a 
what he called a super Calvinist. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't, you know, they, they wouldn't evangelize. They wouldn't talk to anybody. They, it was really a hardcore camp. And it finally got to the point where he, this was the really disturbing part. Um, he, he said to me, he said, you know, Craig, he said, we're, we're probably not going to agree. And he, and he said, um, I really don't want to be associated with you anymore. And he, he quit his job. He quit working for me. He did something else because he did not want to, mm -hmm. you know, be, be associated with, with me and, 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 and anybody else. Yeah. It, was, it was very disturbing. Still. Yeah, and, and that is a disturbing thing. There, there's a group called, that's known as hyper-Calvinist. They're all the way to the end. And um, there is a total loss of evangelism and a responsibility to share Christ. Um, and then you've got the other side with Arminians who are so man-centered in their doctrine that it's all about your work and how you can get salvation on your own. Of course, they go through Christ. So that's what I'm saying. Those are ditches, and we need to make sure we find a good balance in the midst of that. And one of those things that I was going to bring up is exactly what you were sharing, that some of, just some of the, the cautions of thinking that you have a particular truth that nobody else has and putting you in a spiritual elitism and uh, arrogant position where you look down on people. And we're going to look at that in just a moment, okay? Misunderstandings of the doctrine of election. I kind of rephrased it because I wanted to put it in the misunderstandings. The way he says is election is not, but I want you to just see the two things here that he says. Number one is fatalistic or mechanistic, okay? Um, the, the arguments there, you know what were there. Um, fatalism says that we have no choice, and if we have no choice, there's really no reason to make a choice about anything, and there's no motivation to do anything in life. Um, mechanic, mechanistic is that impersonal force that is out there and the world just happens and, you know, the case, sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be mentality. And it's not that. The doctrine of election is not dealing with those two positions. It treats every person, God sees them as an individual. God is not an impersonal force. There is a love relationship that he has with people. And then the second thing is election is based upon God's foreknowledge of our faith. He has a long part of that. And that's that God looking through the corridor of time and choosing those people that will choose him. I heard one famous pastor say this. This is how I define God's election. God looked through the corridor of time and saw that I elected him, so he elected me. Um, and I'm thinking, well, that's kind of the man has sovereignty instead of God has the sovereignty there. And so there's a little bit of confusion when it comes to that. Um, when it deals with the, this issue of foreknowledge, he gives a number of arguments there. What are some of the arguments against um, um, election is based on God's foreknowledge? What are some of the arguments in there? It's actually used in the same passage in Romans, uh, Romans 8, and I, you know, I've seen it as a, a defense of, of that particular view of election as being foreknowledge, um, whereas it's, those 
D4 neutral. That's the first term in the phrase. And you know, we were talking about a little bit earlier, English language is so easy to mix up the subject and object with the verb. Our, our sentence structures are so amorphous and you can really make them what you want them to be. But the Greek is not that way. And when he says those whom he foreknew, it's not talking about, and he says, I, I love the way it's written, but he says it's not foreknowledge of facts, right. it's foreknowledge of people. So to know in an intimate way people in the same way the Bible describes knowing, for example, uh, knowing a spouse or in, in that way, that it's such an intimate knowledge of them, not of things that be in fact. Okay. Yeah, and that's exactly right. The foreknowledge is dealing with that intimacy of knowing people in a personal way. Of course, God does that. He tells Jeremiah, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He says, before you were born, I called you. Before, when you were in your mother's womb, I called you. And you just see the relationship that God has even before um, we are created. Um, he deals with a bunch of obje uh, objections to the doctrine of election. Um, and he lays them out. And I'm just put them all up there, Eric. We're just not going to. You know, I, I want to all of them. He says election means that we do not have a choice in whether we accept Christ or not. Election means we don't have a choice. Now, that would be an objection coming from a, a, a number of positions. How do, how do you respond to that? Do, how would you answer that? Maybe, maybe you're having a problem with this because if election is God choosing us and God working through us, then the question is, are we really free to make a choice? Are we really free to make a choice? I'm asking you. Somebody answer that for me because I don't know. No. no, I do know, but... Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's the deal. If God is working in me and His Holy Spirit is changing my mind about things, at some point I have to humanly make a response to His grace. And so there's nothing inconsistent with God's work of sovereignty in drawing us and me responding by faith. Let me give you an illustration. This is an illustration some of you may have seen or heard before. Let's say that there's an individual who really doesn't care anything about God. He's living for himself. He's partying. All of a sudden, one of his coworkers comes and tells him, hey, man, I want you to come to church with me. Man, I don't have any reason to go to church. Oh, man, I got good-looking girls there. So, I'm a testimony. so go to church. So he goes to church, and he hears this guy preaching. And then he's starting to think. He said, you know what? This guy kind of makes some sense. I think I'm going to go back. He goes back to church, and he hears this guy again. And he leaves there, and all of a sudden, he is just thinking about this stuff, stuff he's never thought of before. 
then he keeps hearing the message of the gospel. He goes back and he goes back. And then the pastor gives an invitation one Sunday. And he just says, my goodness, Jesus is the answer. I choose Jesus and I surrender my life to him. And he gives his life to Christ. And as he gives his life to Christ, he walks into the kingdom of God. And as he's going in, there's an archway. And over that archway, it says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And he has called upon the name of the Lord. And he, in his choice, chose Christ. He walks through that archway. He is in the kingdom of heaven. And when he looks back on the other side of the gate, it says, chosen from the foundations of the world. And so what he sees is, wow, I chose him. But now I realize that long before I responded to his grace, he already chose me in eternity past. And he was the one working in my life to bring me to him. That, that is a great picture of looking at both of those together. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, it's what? That God would choose everyone because he wants everyone to come into the kingdom. And so you go through this scenario, but then there is not a choice. A choice made. What you're saying, though, is the, the person doesn't they could say, well, this all sounds great, and I feel drawn to Christ, and blah, 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 but so so a person, yeah, it goes to that so they don't walk through that archway. Okay, and they reject Christ. Yeah. Okay. We're going to look at another thing next week as we get into this. It's called the general calling, the effectual calling, the general calling and the effectual calling. And there is a general calling that goes out to every person to repent and to believe in Christ. There's a general calling. And then there's an effectual calling where the Holy Spirit is actually working in that person's life. Now, the person who... And you come to this question here, is there, you're dealing with irresistible grace now. And I'm to a place here, and you have to ask the question, can a person, if the Holy Spirit is changing a person's heart and mind, can they resist it and walk away from it? And the question you have to ask that we don't always know about individuals, okay, is this an irresistible grace that's working? And because of the work of the Holy Spirit, he's drawing me and I'm going to come. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And so we see a picture of that in Scripture. And so I believe that if the Holy Spirit is working in a person genuinely, that person's going to come to faith in Christ. If a person hears the gospel message and they resist it, that is a person who has heard the message, have the responsibility to believe, yet they reject it. And then you can say, well, how can they be held accountable if God is not doing the drawing in that person's life. Whether he's doing the drawing or not, we are all accountable 
just because of our sin and our nature. Now, one of the questions people will ask is this. If the Holy Spirit is working in this person's life, then do they really choose? Are they really choosing? Well, the answer to that is yes. It'd be like this. Let's say there's a situation that, that somebody brings to me about making a choice about something, and I don't know anything about it. But an individual who knows a lot about it begins to talk to me, and he gives me the information about that, and as he gives me the information about that, I am now equipped for the first time to be able to make because his influence in my life has led me to make that decision. The influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as he's convicting us of sin and judgment of righteousness brings me to that place where all of a sudden I know the truth and I respond to it. Now, this is one of those mysteries that we're dealing with. And this is one of those frustrating things that we can't always know. Somebody said that, you know, you've got the sovereignty of God, you've got the human responsibility, and there's like two ropes that you're pulling on. But what we don't realize is that it's really one rope. And up in the, in the glories of heaven is the mystery of how those two things work. And I'm not smart enough to figure it all out. But here's the thing that we know, that I, we know through Scripture that without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, a person will not come to faith in Christ. Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we will not see our sin. Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we will not see the righteousness of Christ. Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we will not see the judgment to come. The Holy Spirit is the one, and I think we would all agree with that. I was dealing with a guy one time. I, I had a church interviewing me several years ago, and uh, we were in some serious talks with the committee and the team, and they brought in this theologian from their church to ask me questions, and he began asking me a bunch of questions, and he said, um, he said, I just want to know, are you Calvinist? Are you a Calvinist? And I said, no, I wouldn't call myself a Calvinist. Um, and he said, well, 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 what do you believe? I said, well, let me ask you if we believe the same thing. I said, do you believe that every person is totally depraved and incapable of saving themselves? Yes. I said, do you believe that it's unconditional election and God's grace and not merited favor that they have a relationship with God? Yes. Do you believe that people are going to go to hell because they reject Christ? Yes. Do you believe in uh, irresistible grace or that the Holy Spirit is required in your life? Do you believe in the perseverance of the saints? He says, yes. I said, well, we've agreed to the same thing. We both agreed to the same things. And he says, are you reformed? I said, yes. He said, conversation over. Boom, hung up the phone on me and never heard from the church again, which I was happy with. Um, because I'm still here. But uh, the, the thing is, what I'm saying is, a lot of times these mysteries, we struggle with words and we struggle with all these little nuances. And we get into these depths of trying to figure out a lot of, of it. Now, we're running out of time. Let me ask you this question. What is the thing that you struggle the most with about this topic? What, what is your greatest struggle? Yep. Where, where, you know, Paul says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, you know, will be saved. And, you know, as I read this chapter through, I'm going, Gruden, just answer me that question. And he stayed away from it. He wouldn't even cite in the chapter, you know, Romans 10, 13. 
and I'm wondering why won't why wouldn't Gruden you know at least talk about that or try to explain it? But yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know why he didn't, but um, I do know that um, that's one of those very important verses that we hold to. Because I want to tell you this, C.H. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon was Calvinistic to the core, and yet he was evangelistic to a to everything that you've ever seen. He was in a church one day. He walks in there, and he always practiced and wanted to check the, the, the residents of the room. And he, uh, he went in there, and, and he didn't know there was nobody in there. He just shouted out, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I like the way it sounds. He walked out. A couple of minutes later, this man was working in the attic. He came down, weeping and crying and surrendered his life to faith in Christ because of that scripture verse. And again, there's that mystery. We don't know anything but we do, that was happening in that man's life, but there is no salvation or transformation apart from the work of God's Spirit and His Word. Here's something we need to remember. When the Word of God and the Spirit of God collide, there's life. There's life. This little evangelist that I used to know, Chris may remember, R.F. Gates was his name. Man, he'd go everywhere. He'd bring those little tracts with him, little Bibles. He said, every time I put one of those somewhere, I pray, Lord, set this dynamite ablaze. And uh, just being able to share the gospel with that. Somebody else raised their hand. Who raised it? I know. Yes. I, why me? When I look at these, you said the hardest thing to understand is yeah. the election. Why me? Yeah. I know so many people raised along with me. Yeah. That's the hardest thing. It is. I mean, think of this. Seven billion people in the world. And those of us who are in faith in Christ is nothing but the grace of God. And we have to say, wow, why me of all people? Well, that brings a great stewardship issue to it, doesn't it? Who else? Stan. Why what? Then why is there an elect? Why are we yeah. elected? I, I do believe it's the will of the Father that no human shall perish. Well, if you, if, if you read that verse, it doesn't say the will of the Father. It says it's his desire. And there's a difference between God's desire and his ultimate will. And so if his desire is that none would perish, because we even see that in the Old Testament, God says he takes no delight in the death of an evil man. And so God takes no delight in it, but we know it happens. And so there's this distinction between a desire and the will of God. And so while we can say he desires this, we know that people, because if God ultimately desired it, and if he willed it, it would happen. It would be a reality, and there would be, everyone would be saved and come to that. He can. Yeah, and because of his sovereignty. And if he doesn't, he's right in not doing it.
the multitude yeah. that nobody could count. So in some measure, it's a large number. We might look at it and say that's a relatively small number. In comparison, it's a remnant. Yeah. Yeah. And the question you can yeah, you can ask that question, but the other question would be why did he pick anyone? It it does. Either way demonstrates his love and it doesn't limit his love. Because what we do is we're, we're limiting it um, and, and from a human perspective. And the thing that God sees is for the glory of his own purposes. Um, and it's always about the glory of God. Remember one thing. I would say this has been my, my personal experience in getting through what is it? The doctrinal election because election because I I pushed hard against this for the majority of my life, and when I get to these passages, I would just you know I uh, I gotta move on. I can't I couldn't stick around and think about them because it was it was just hard. But when I when you know the way I experienced it, God took the veil from away from my eyes. I could see just how meaningful and how what the condition of my sin, what it put me in, and just how bad sin is. And so when you say, how does it glorify God? I say that any one person that he chooses for life is glory to God because uh, every time I wake up in the morning and I have breath in my lungs, it means I have more time that he's given me. And that is glory to God because I didn't do it. It's not from me. I didn't make any of it happen. Yeah. And I, I, that's... That's my answer to, to the glory of God. Is that once you see how how what, who is it? Uh, Richard Sitz, I think he wrote the little book, uh, you know, the sinfulness of sin. Um, I think it was him. I, I thought that was a curious title, but the whole book is about trying to get you to realize exactly what your sin does to you and to all people, and how glorious it is that God takes care of us. Yeah, and and it is, and that's a, that's a tough question to answer. I can't answer that for God. I know this, that if he just saved one individual, that's his grace and his love that he didn't have to display. And God's love is not measured on the quantity of people, but on the fact that he is saving anybody. And that puts me to a place of rather than spending my time asking God um, some questions that I can't answer, is for me to be able to acknowledge what he has done and what he's asking me to do for his glory. A lot of times people will say this. They'll say, well, what about the innocent natives? Well, what innocent native? Every person is responsible for their sin. Read Romans 1. 120 says they are without excuse. And my second question is, if you're so concerned about the innocent natives, why are you here? Why aren't you there? Why are you not telling them about the grace of God? and the love of God, and how much He loves them. And so we can deal with all of these different questions. And listen, this is not something you're going to necessarily settle tonight. Some of you, uh, your whole life you've been dealing with this. 
I want to close with these things. These are not in your books. How to walk in the doctrines of grace. How do we deal with this? Let me give you number one. Praise God for His amazing grace in your life. Every one of us can do that. It's the grace of God. So I, I walk every day by thanking God for His amazing grace. And, and like you said, Mike, why me? Why me? And so it, I had nothing to offer. So praise God for His grace. Number two, remind yourself often that His grace is unmerited favor. There's nothing you've done that God said, Oh, I need him. I need her. There's nothing. And so we remind ourselves daily of this. Number three, keep in step with God's spirit as he continues to change you. He's begun the work in you and he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So keep in step with him and allow him to keep changing your life. Number three, Walk in humility with believers who hold a different view. Walk in humility with one another. And we might not all agree together in this, but we have a humble heart where we love one another, we embrace one another, and we don't let things like this divide us. Because ultimately, when we're dealing with the doctrine of election, um, we, you, there are different camps. And here's a dangerous thing. To say that because a person doesn't hold your view in that, to call them a false teacher or a heretic. Because as long as we keep the tenets of the gospel centered, then we're going to walk together in sharing the gospel. How we share it might be different because of our theological grid, but the fact that we share the truth of the gospel, of why Jesus came and what He did, and their only hope is a relationship with Christ. Okay, so, and then lastly, share the good news with others who need to hear. Share the good news. Why would you not? God's amazing grace is in your life. If somebody came to you and gave you a check for $10 million and it actually was cashable, <laughs> you would tell people about that. You would tell probably every family member, everybody you know. How much more valuable is the Lord Jesus? Well, you might not tell anybody. This, I'm going to close with this little book, just this little thing here. This is called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, written by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is now with the Lord. He's a brilliant theologian from Vancouver. Um, and this is a sweet little book. In fact, we give this out to every person that goes on the mission field. Um, because we talk about evangelism and the sovereignty of God. And why we do this is because we want to have a good balance of when we share the gospel that we trust in the work of the Spirit of God. In it, he tells a story about this great preacher by the name of Charles Simeon. This guy was phenomenal. And he was so mistreated by the many people in his church. And he stayed there for 26 years. And he has an encounter with John Wesley. Okay, he and John Wesley are at odds with this issue of the doctrine of election. And this is something that he says. He says, it is instructive in this connection to ponder Charles Simeon's account of his conversation with John Wesley on December the 10th, 1784. The date is given in Wesley's journal. So Wesley actually journals this. Okay, here's what it says. Sir... This is, this is um, Simeon speaking to Wesley. Sir, 
I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist. And therefore, I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart? Yes, says the veteran, I do indeed. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood of righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ. But, sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself after your own works? No, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God and you are not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? No. What then? Are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Yes, altogether. And is all your hope in the grace and the mercy of God to preserve you until His heavenly kingdom? Yes, I have no hope but in Him. Then, sir, with your leave I will put up my dagger. For this is all my Calvinism. This is all my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold, and as I hold it, and therefore, if you would please, instead of searching our terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things where we agree. I thought that was beautifully stated. These two guys who are at odds, understanding what the most important aspects of the gospel are. Remember the picture I showed of Whitfield and Wesley? Whitfield's a little cross-sided in that picture. And you got Wesley over here. Somebody came to Whitfield one day and they said, Sir, do you suppose that you would see John Wesley in heaven? Whitfield said, I scarcely believe that I will see John Wesley in heaven. And the young man said, I knew it, I knew it. He said, wait a minute, I'm not finished. I scarcely believe that I would see John Wesley in heaven because he will be so near the throne of Jesus and I so far away. Put up our daggers. Work through this. Deal with the struggle, the issues of this. And as we pursue to be biblicist and walk in absolute confidence of God's work in our lives, then let us go for the glory of Christ in all that we do. And while we have these issues that we struggle with, we give them to God and we walk in humility and we embrace one another because we as brothers and sisters are moving towards eternity together and we want to take as many people as we can and not let the divisions of history and the divisions of our culture be the things that divide us as we are here. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. We know that we are dealing with things and doctrines that we don't fully understand. And Father, while some of us may be very comfortable in where we are, some of us may be struggling with where we are, we have the same Holy Spirit and the same truth. And I ask, Father, that you would unite our hearts together in those things. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now.
Here's your assignment. You ready? Go tell somebody about Jesus this week. Thank you for listening, and we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scott's Hill. Till next time.